John chapter 12 is where we find ourselves this morning. John chapter 12. We'll be looking at two verses. These verses, of course, with every verse come within a context, and I'll explain that in a moment. But the verses are verse 42 and 43 of John chapter 12, where we read in God's word the following. Nevertheless, even among the many rulers, excuse me, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. I think I have a sermon title. And uh, yes, I do. It is Cowardly Belief in Jesus. I want to prove that that title is worthy of itself as we look through this, these two verses. Now, I said before, this comes in a context. It's verses 37 through 50. It's basically the section in John's gospel where we go from the public ministry of our Lord to our Lord with his disciples a few days before his death. There are other public appearances of our Lord, but not formal public ministry and miracles, either miracles or word actions or deeds of our Lord. Um, this is the end of his public ministry. This is the apostle assessing various things. I think three things in this section. The first is the apostle assesses the widespread Jewish unbelief during our Lord's earthly ministry. You can see that in verses 37 and following. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. And it goes on and on. So there is his assessment of widespread Jewish unbelief in the context of all the miracles he did and the ones they saw, plus his word deeds, the things that he spoke about himself being sent from heaven. Then in verses 42 and 43, we have John's assessment of the cowardly belief of some of the rulers. And then finally, from verses 44 to 50, we have an overview of some of our Lord's claims during his earthly ministry. So verses 37 to 50 function as a transition from our Lord's earthly ministry to the last few days of his life on the earth, which... He spent mostly with his closest earthly comrades, the apostles, giving them directives about what life would be like for them once he died, rose, and ascended to heaven. So if I had an outline for this session, section, it'd be something like this, verses 37 through 41. John's assessment of widespread Jewish unbelief during our Lord's earthly ministry. Verses 42 and 43, the cowardly belief of some rulers. And verses 44 to 50, an overview of some of our Lord's claims during his earthly ministry. So we're focusing on that second aspect, that second part of this larger section, verses 42 and 43. Three. Hear those words again. Nevertheless, 
So this is a contrast with the others, the widespread Jewish unbelief. Even among the rulers, many, here's that word, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. So this believing must be a private thing within the theater of their souls, and the confessing must be external or something that comes from the internal but goes out from them and others could either hear it or witness their confession. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they, were, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of of God. So here is an apostolic assessment of many of the religious rulers of that day. Now, recall the fact that John's not, you know, if we could put ourselves back uh, in John's day, it's not like he's witnessing this and writing it down. This already occurred. John is probably a decade or maybe a little longer after. Uh, is making an apostolic assessment under the uh, endowment of the Holy Spirit, con- uh, concluding in the written word of God for us. So when I say an apostolic assessment, we could say a Christo- Christo- Christ- a Jesus assessment or God's assessment of many of these rulers, okay? And I want to note several things. First of all, note the simple assertion of the assessment, that's at the beginning of verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. I might put believed in him in quotes sometimes. You'll see why. The rulers would consist of civil and religious rulers, otherwise known as Sanhedrin, a group of uh, civil and religious rulers in Jerusalem. In contrast to widespread unbelief among the common people, there was some sort of Uh, intellectual acknowledgement of our Lord's identity by many rulers. I don't think, however, John means that they believed in him the way they ought to have unto the salvation of their souls. The rest of verse 42 and 43, I think, indicate this. But it does say that many believed in him. What do we make of that? That's a startling statement. If I'm saying, yeah, many believed in him, but not under the salvation of of their souls, how do we we deal with the fact that it does say they believed in him? What did they believe about him? He doesn't tell us, right? Well, if we read the entirety of the Gospel of John up to this point, we could probably fill in the gaps at least a little. Here's what one commentator says, John Gill, that he was the Messiah, though... They did not believe in him in a spiritual and saving manner. You remember the expectations of a lot of first century Jews as the Messiah is a political uh, power who comes in and destroys Israel's enemies. They did not view the, see the sufferings and glory as depicted in the Old Testament prophets. That he would come in our nature in order to repair our nature and suffer due to our sins and be glorified due to his obedience all for us and for our salvation. They didn't see him as that. But they did see him as related to what the prophets said about the coming Messiah. So they had 
didn't connect all the dots, in other words. They didn't see him, he says, as their redeemer and savior. Only in their minds, being convicted by his miracles, they gave an assent unto him as the promised Messiah. If Gill's not right, I think he's close to being right. Now, two men among this cast of rulers are mentioned in John's gospel as true believers. Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus back in chapter 3? We're going we're gonna to meet him again toward the end. And Joseph of Arimathea. If you've read the gospel of John, you know those names. But the type of faith they had and the belief in him that many of the rulers have is not one and the same. So he's not talking about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. These many rulers appear to have a, a, at, at that time what some call historical faith. Have you ever heard that phrase? Historical faith. They assented privately to some true notions about Jesus' true identity based on the knowledge they possessed about him and the things he did among them, but they did not do with that knowledge what they ought to have. Historical faith. This lack of doing what they ought to do exposes the type of belief in him they had. By the way, we've seen this before, this kind of belief in John's gospel. Look back at John chapter 2. Remember these words in John 2, 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Now watch what he says. When they saw the signs which he did. Now, you remember the previous section in John's Gospel of chapter 12? Widespread Jewish unbelief in the face of many miracles, okay? So I think there's a connection here. These people are kind of like the many rulers. They believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Watch this. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Okay? So they gave themselves to Jesus, but he didn't give himself to them. They believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them. Okay? So we have that kind of faith or belief here in John chapter 12. Jacobus, another commentator, puts it well, that this belief was not of a saving nature or such as was required, is manifest from its operation, that is, from its fruit, from what it does. It did not lead to a self-denying devotedness. They had a conviction of his claims so far as to have yielded to the evidence of his miracles, and that's it. These many rulers, this is me now, Acknowledge something very different about Jesus. So far, so good. He's not a regular first century dude. They were right about some things about him, but wrong about others. Their belief was not full, or what we would call saving faith. It was what I identified already as historical faith. They had as the object of their belief Something about our Lord. They seemed to have assented to it as true, 
because it says they believed in him. But since they didn't believe all there was to believe about him under the salvation of their souls, they did not entrust themselves to him to be washed and cleansed from their sins and confess him before others. So, I said, let's note, first of all, the simple assertion of the assessment. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. My second thing to note is this. Notice the contrasting lack of action in light of this assessment. But, here's the contrast, because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. So we got something going on internal that's called believed in him, and now we have something that ought to be externalized, but it's not. They ought to confess him. In other words, if you get fire on your hand, if you stick your, excuse me, hand in a fire, you ought to pull it out, right? If you get the fire of saving grace in your soul, it's going to come out. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. So why didn't these many rulers confess our Lord according to their beliefs? Because of the Pharisees, right? Because of the religious leaders. Now, should they have confessed him publicly? Just reading the passage, should they have? It looks like they should have, right? Here's Romans 10.9, by the way. Apostolic assessment here that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's an external thing that expresses itself externally, right? While on earth, remember what our Lord said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory, Luke 9, 26. You think that's going on here? I think that's the apostolic, divine assessment of these many rulers. Did those many rulers display themselves as ashamed of our Lord? It sure seems so. Why? Well, externally, because of the Pharisees, the gatekeepers of the temple and the teaching ministry of ancient Israel in the days of our Lord. But why would the Pharisees have such influence upon many rulers that they would not confess our Lord publicly as they ought to have? Why would the Pharisees have such influence? Here's, uh, before I answer that question, listen to these words of J.C. Ryle. They dared not openly confess their faith in our Lord for fear of the persecution of the Pharisees. They were cowards, that's where I got my word coward from, J.C. Ryle, and influenced by the fear of man. You think that's true? I think that's true. So note the reason for the contrasting lack of action. They said they believed in him, they ought to have confessed him. They said they believed in him, but they didn't confess him. And here's a re one of the reasons. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why won't you confess Christ? I don't want to be put out of the synagogue. 
Why didn't they confess him publicly as the promised Messiah and only savior of sinners? Well, I don't think they believed in him as the only savior of sinners. But they thought rightly about at least one connection with the Old Testament, Messiah. Here's the answer why they didn't do that. Social and relational changes would have come upon them, inflicted upon them by the religious elite, the Pharisees. Social and religious pressure. That's why they didn't confess him. They would have been kicked out of the synagogue. They would have suffered public shame for it and would have been social outcasts. Recall the words of John 9.22. The Jews, religious leaders, had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, remember those words? He would be put out of the synagogue. That's in the context of the man born blind that was healed. They threatened excommunication. Now, at that time among the ancient Jews, there was no other acceptable form of public religion. It wasn't like you can go to the, you know, you can go to the synagogue and three times a year you can go to the temple and you can go to the mosque and you can go to the Christian church and you can go to the conservative Christian church, you can go to the liberals, you can go to the, the rock singing church, you can go to the hymn singing church, you can go to the Arminian church, you can go to the Calvinist church, you can go to the confessional church, you can go to the non you know, They didn't have choices. This was it. And if you were a ruler... You were a public person with the esteem, well, it wasn't always the esteem of the people, but because they were nasty people quite often, but you were propped up, you were something, you were visible, you lived in the gated community. That's not in the notes. See, I can speak to 21st century people. The synagogue, back then, the place on the seventh-day Sabbath, where from some time in ancient Jewish history during the psalm, during when, at least when the psalms were written, the Jews started meeting publicly. Um, actually, it was way back. Leviticus 23 has, has what came to be called synagogue meetings, Sabbaths every Sabbath, meeting together for ins- public instruction. Being put out of that synagogue was a big deal. And even a bigger deal for public rulers. You know, it's one thing for just common folk, you can't come to synagogue anymore. You're, you're religious and therefore a social ass, uh, outcast. You know why I'm saying that? Because religion and culture, society, civil and, religi- and religious were one. Monolithic, that was a monolithic uh, one-stoned culture. If you're in our culture, you're in our religion. So they would have been literally out of a job and the objects of public scorn. So I don't want to lighten this. I want to highlight how big of a deal this was back then. These many rulers' private belief had something to do with the identity of Jesus, And being put out of the synagogue would not allow them to give public expression to the true religion of their hearts, if they had it. 
If they publicly confess Jesus as the Old Testament's predicted Messiah and Savior of sinners, their previous way of expressing their religion would have been taken from them. But I just gave them more than I gave them earlier. I just assumed, okay, they had true faith in the Messiah who is Savior. But they, I don't even think they had that. They just had historical faith that Jesus is unique based on his words and works, his miracles, and that somehow, some way, we think he's connected to the Old Testament. Because of the Pharisees, note fourth, the inward motivation for the contrasting lack of action. They believed in him, but they didn't confess him. Why? Because of the Pharisees, okay? Because of external pressure brought upon them by religious elites, but that's not everything that's going on, right? Something's going on inside. Because have you ever gotten pressure from the outside not to do the right thing? Yes. Did you nonetheless do the right thing in the face of pressure? Not every single time, but at least once or twice. Yes. There was something when you did the right thing in the face of persecution from the outside. There was something working in you, right? There was an inward motivation that overcame the pressure to fear that persecution and to do what's right. Same thing's happening here. There's something outside that's keeping them from doing what's right. And there's something inside as well. What is it? Very clear. Verse 43. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. There it is right there. There was more to their lack of public confession than not wanting to get put out of the synagogue. That was only half the story. Excommunication from the synagogue was an external motivation brought upon them by the Pharisees. But there was more going on than losing public face, wasn't there? There was a deeper, hidden, subjective motive working itself out in their souls, crippling them and making them cowards. Listen to our Lord's words found in John 5:44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? That's what's see, the apostolic assessment sure is in line with Jesus' assessment, isn't it? Proverbs 29:25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. These men were trapped by the thoughts and convictions of others, unwilling to go against what others thought. They loved the praise of men. Listen to J.C. Ryle once more. St. John here tells us plainly the prevailing motive in the minds of the cowardly Jews. They loved above everything to be well thought of by their fellow men. They thought more of having the good opinion of man than the praise, approval of God. They could not bear the idea of being laughed at, ridiculed, reviled, 
or persecuted by their fellow men. To keep in with them and have their praise, they sacrificed their own conscience. They're bloody. How much this feeling injures the soul is shown by our Lord's words in a former place, how can ye believe which receive honor one of another? So those are, that's the cowardly belief of many rulers. Really, I think it exposes our own hearts and a lot of questions should be asked of us. So I have two contemplations for today. One will be addressed in full in the first hour, first sermon. The other I'm going to save for the second sermon. But I want to give them both to you in the order, in this order. One and two, but we're going to deal with two. And then deal with one later. One is this, some in my hearing this day have publicly confessed their faith in Christ. Right? You didn't do this. At some point, you publicly confessed your faith in Christ. The next words in my notes say, I bless God for this. Right? If you're in Christ Jesus, it's your doing or his doing. You might have had historical... I said I wasn't going to preach this part, but I am. You might have had historical faith at one time, but at one point, you've transitioned from just historical faith or cranial knowledge and assent to full-fledged saving faith, where with your sinful, sin-stained, soiled hands, you opened up your heart and mind and hands to the offer of the gospel, and you got the benefits of Christ because he gave them to you, Okay? So as Christians, we contemplate these cowards and we go, thank God I'm not like them. Well, not exactly, right? Thank God I confess Christ. So the second contemplation is the one I want to concentrate on now and we'll get back to the first one later. It's this, some in my hearing this day have some sort of belief in Christ but have not publicly confessed him in the full manner in which Scripture requires. Now, my question is this, why? So let's consider some reasons why this might be so. One is this, you have true faith in Christ but have yet to confess him publicly. That, that, that's an option, right? Right? Why would somebody be here this morning conf- uh, believing in Christ and not confessing him? Well, maybe they're in the process of doing that. This public confession could be in process, right? Uh, and I'll just be very personal here with our church. We have one such among us, right? How did you know that's the next word in my notes? It's, except it's not in Spanish, it's in English. Amen with an exclamation point. If you want to see it, I'll show you later. But also could be many 
Uh, maybe you have not publicly confessed him because you don't know how and where. Could there be a person in the world that has Christ as the object of their faith, but is ignorant on how to move ahead and confess him publicly? Yeah, there can. You can be on the train and give somebody the gospel and they could be saved. And yet walking around kind of ignorant about what do I do now, right? That's why evangelism that doesn't terminate on the person getting under a ministry of the, in the church is only half evangelism. So maybe you have not publicly confessed him because you don't know how and where. So here's my exhortation to you. Tell others of your faith in him. Uh, tell me today, then I'll tell you to tell the church by being baptized and joining the church, and we will all rejoice together, consummating that public profession in the Lord's Holy Supper. So maybe that's you. I don't know. But secondly, firstly was this, you have true faith in Christ but have yet to confess him publicly. Secondly, maybe this fits you as what you, instead. You have a similar kind of belief in Christ that these many rulers had. Maybe you're sitting here. By the way, you're here. And I assume there's something connected to Jesus for the for the motivating factor or basis for your presence here unless somebody put a gun to your head, which I don't think that's why you're here. You have, maybe you have a similar kind of belief in Christ that these many rulers had. You believe there's something about Jesus that is unique. They believed that. He's not your normal standard figure from the first century. If you're here today because of that belief, the things you believe about Jesus sometimes keep you from doing or saying things you know are wrong. Right? You can be unsaved, believe something about Jesus, and that belief in Jesus as not fully formed saving faith can keep you from doing and saying things. Maybe because of the things you believe about Jesus, you, you say to yourself something like this. I'm not what I used to be. Good. Right? And I'm certainly not like those sinful, evil people over there. Maybe you trust your attendance at public worship as a good sign that you're doing a good deed which warrants approval and reward from God. People think this way. You know, the way I put that is so you're like giving God a bone kind of thing. And you think God is going to reward you with glory in heaven by virtue of things that you do because of you have a half-baked belief in Jesus. That's not Christianity. Maybe others know you frequent public worship and commend you for it. But your belief 
like these many rulers, has not moved you to go any farther than an internal persuasion of something true about Jesus. If that's you, what does that sound like? Or better yet, who do you sound like? To me, you sound like these many rulers, right? There, there's something internal, belief. It expresses itself sometimes externally, like today. But it falls short of true and saving faith. Now I'm going to close with the words from a hymn. And I want you to take these words from the hymn and then we're going to sing it. If you want to look, it's hymn number 393. Take these words as me beseeching you to come to Jesus. Not like these many rulers did. Come foul to be cleansed. Come guilty to be pronounced righteous, but not by virtue of anything you've done, but by virtue of his righteousness credited to you. Come weak and wounded. Come sick and sore. These are the words from, words from the hymn. Come needy beyond human help. I think I added those. You have to come to the point where you realize, I don't just need horizontal help. I need a top-down, vertical, from heaven, zap from God. God has to do this, you know. Come that way. Weary, heavy laden, bruised, and broken by the fall. You know how that's a contemporary word. We're all broken. I used to not like it. But if you put it in that kind of a context, broken by the fall, I get it then, okay? Come with your bloodied, guilty conscience. Come with your bad life record and your bad heart in need of divine repair. I've said this before. Do not look at repentance like this. In order for me to go to Jesus, I got to really be serious about sinning less. So when I do that, sin less, then I'll go to Jesus. Foul eye, to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Right? Um, I think it's just as I am or something like that in the hymnal. That was a hymn, right? Just as I am. I remember when I was in seminary, I was trained not to like that. You can't come just as you have. You have to repent. What if repentance is the changing of my mind and the bringing of the things I, I'm repenting of to Christ for help? I think that's more in, turn, turn, uh, in line with biblical repentance. Here are the words. We're going to sing them. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. You see what the hymn writer's doing? Beseeching, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, 
joined with power. It's one thing to be full of pity. It's another thing to have unlimitless power. He is able. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come ye needy. Come and welcome God's free bounty glorify. Choose not the praise of men, but the praise of God. True belief and true repentance Every grace that brings you nigh without money, without money, without money, Isaiah. Come to Jesus Christ and buy. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry, tell your better. If you continue on until you're better, you'll never come at all. See what they're saying? Just deal with it. You're messed up. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. It's like, is this poetic? Or you think we're kind of numbskulls? I heard you the first time. Sinners. Jesus came to call. One thing I liked about that old, well, it was, it was church on the, I forgot the name of it. You'll remember. Jesus Save sign in downtown LA. Was that? Church of the Open Door. Remember that Jesus Saves things? That, that's true. And we, we need to distinguish between Jesus saving and faith saving. Does faith save? Well, not as an internal subjective act of the intellect or will, but faith is the instrument that sinners receive Jesus through, who is the Savior. He's the one that saves. Let not conscience make you linger. Oh, I got a bloody conscience. I have a stained conscience. So, that's why you need him. Nor of fitness fondly dream. I'll just get better. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Now watch this. This he gives you. This he gives you. This he gives you. It's poetic. It's music here. Or lyrics. Tis the Spirit's Rising beam. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We we don't want any cowardly belief in Jesus in our own hearts. Or I don't want this in anyone here. We want the real thing, saving faith, going out of ourselves, looking to him, buying without money, bringing our sins with us for cleansing, for righteousness, for hope, for a new life, for all things to become new. Bless your word, and as we sing, encourage 
our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.